Welcome to Going Antiviral, the podcast for the IAS USA, a professional continuing medical education organization focused on HIV and other viral diseases. I'm Dr. Michael Sag, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and volunteer member of the IAS USA Board of Directors. Welcome to a special edition of the Going Antiviral podcast recorded live from the 2023 Ryan White Clinical Conference in Portland, Oregon. Today, we're very pleased to be speaking with Dr. Meredith Clement, professor at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center. Thank you for joining us, Meredith. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So we're here today to talk about syphilis. (laughs) My favorite. Is that new? (laughs) I've never heard of this before. So syphilis has been around for quite some time. I actually was in um, my Uber driver and I started talking about this yesterday morning on the way to the airport. And he said, I can't, we've been dealing with syphilis forever. I can't believe we're still dealing with it. And I went on to say, you know, really since the early 2000s, we've seen just cases climbing and climbing and continuing to climb. And here we are. And that's, and that we had had such success in the 1990s, right? It had been, We'd been with high rates in the 80s and whatnot, and then it came down in the 90s. Before we get to the rise that we're having now, do you have any insight or thoughts about why it came down in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people attribute that to actually the HIV epidemic and this really consciousness of kind of who am I having sex with, how am I having sex, and almost a fear, right, of HIV that corresponded to a fear in other STIs. And, um, you know, as people started using more condoms for protection, we saw this decline. I'm sure there were some other, you know, public health interventions, but you're right, people were really excited that we could potentially eradicate syphilis around that time. And then things changed. Yeah, so currently... We have this surge even after COVID, maybe especially after COVID, when people were isolated. So give us a flavor of what your impression is of the current numbers and where we're headed. Yeah, so um, in 2021, which is kind of where we have the reliable or or finalized data from the CDC, we saw a little more than 176,000 cases of syphilis in the United States. Uh, The largest increases were among cisgender women. Um, So just from 2020 to 2021, there was a 55% increase among cisgender women. And that actually corresponded to a really... um, dramatic uptick in congenital syphilis cases too. But by far still the the predominant kind of demographic group where we see the most cases is men who have sex with men. And and just a caveat to the data that, you know, the CDC doesn't break down gender and sex that specifically. So we don't have reliable or good numbers for transgender or non-binary persons. Yeah, if we unpack a little bit of this notion of congenital syphilis, it's on one hand, you say, okay, cisgender women, uh, cases are rising, therefore you might expect it to translate over to uh, babies with moms being infected during pregnancy, but it feels like it's a huge indictment of our perinatal care system, right? Because walk us through what well, should happen. Well, so... Um, so first of all, I think there's a lot of variability within states um, of who gets tested when in terms of, of prenatal care. So some states say once, some states say t- 
twice, some st- or that would be first and third trimester. And then recently, some states have added a test rate at delivery as well, um, which is can be fraught. It can be challenging to interpret these cases. And as you know, we can actually see false positive RPR testing in the setting of pregnancy too. So I think there's some challenges with testing. That said, um, overall, we really need to do a better job of screening during pregnancy because it's these missed opportunities. You know, you said an indictment of kind of the the care that these women are receiving or these pregnant persons are receiving. Um, You know, I'm from Louisiana. We have some of the highest maternal mortality and kind of outcomes, fetal outcomes or infant outcomes associated with that. Um, And so I think there's a big drive to try to do a better job of, of making sure that women everywhere, no matter who they are, what their background is, gets appropriate prenatal care. Um, but that starts with with testing um, and, and understanding how to interpret the test appropriately. And then also making sure if there is a case of syphilis during pregnancy that that woman is treated appropriately and, and timely, right, Bef- prior to delivery. So my instinct would say, well, maybe it's because we don't have the resources to have women enter prenatal care or to test them. But we could argue on one hand, well, we should increase funding for the infrastructure of public health systems and that type of thing. But on the other hand, uh, even in Alabama, and I know in Louisiana, Medicaid usually picks up women when they're pregnant for the purpose of making sure they have prenatal care. So there's something amiss, it feels like. Yeah, I think there's a disconnect. So I think um, it also would come down to um, appropriate outreach, right, and education. Um, I don't have a huge sense for, you know, are there providers out there that are misinterpreting, you know, positive tests? I don't think that's really the case. There was a recent MMWR article that that came out that kind of looked at what's been going on. Actually, they they did look at 2022 data, um, more than 3,500 cases of congenital syphilis. The vast majority, I think 88%, had to do with late testing or treatment. And so that was the major driver, not kind of uninterpretable, uninterpretable tests or late seroconversion or anything. But, you know, I I just think it's going to take a lot of outreach to to reach women or persons who are pregnant. Right. So um, certainly people listening to this podcast, some of them are clinician providers and nurse practitioners and, and PAs, but others may be just members of the general public. And can you give walk us through the, the stages of syphilis and how it might present, and then we'll get into treatment? Yeah, sure. So one of my favorite topics is thinking about syphilis and stages, and are we staging it appropriately or correctly? Um, and so syphilis generally starts with primary syphilis, a, a shanker. Um, it happens at a, a median of about 21 days after exposure, you start to see these painless ulcers um, at the sites of, you know, the genitals, oral lesions, um, because they can be painful, they can be multiple, um, but in general, it's a single painless shanker, um, and so it can often go missed, right? Patients may not realize that it's there. And so then if it progresses untreated, several weeks, four to eight weeks later, it often results in secondary syphilis. That's the rash that we typically think of of palms and soles, but also we see, you know, renal dysfunction or hepatitis or other manifestations of secondary syphilis. It becomes systemic, right? And the shanker's gone by The shanker resolves in a shortly 
when it goes untreated, yes. And then if secondary syphilis is untreated, then, you know, syphilis can progress over time to tertiary syphilis. We, depending on whether it's gummitis disease or cardiovascular disease, kind of the onset to that is is variable, but it can be decades later. And yeah, and then in the meantime, there's neurosyphilis too, right? So if, if neurosyphilis presents early, it's usually meningovascular disease, meningitis, or stroke. That's kind of in the early phases. But then also if it's late neurosyphilis, and keep in mind this can happen at any time during the course of syphilis, you'll see, you know, general paresis or tabes dorsalis. We really don't see those manifestations very often anymore, fortunately. Right. That was the Al Capone scene. I <laughs> yeah. think he had advanced neurosyphilis <gasps> when he died. Yeah, there, I think there was a, a Scrubs episode, too. You know, yeah. we, it's the, those cases we pop probably, up in pop culture. We could probably have an entire podcast on famous people <laughs> yeah. right, who have right. developed syphilis yeah, through, yeah. The, through the centuries. But focus, I, I, I flashed to a case that I saw when I was an intern in training of meningovascular syphilis. It's a secondary mm-hmm. syphilis manifestation. The issue was it was a guy who worked at a construction site and he was driving a tractor. And some of the other workers noticed that he was just driving in a very small circle around mm-hmm. and around and around. Yeah. So they had to hop on the tractor and shut it down and pull him off and brought him to the hospital. But it was pretty clear he had syphilis and he had meningovascular, we have to give him IV penicillin to treat that. But it was very striking. And, you know, I'll never forget that case. So let's transition then to how we diagnose this. When do we test? What are your recommendations? What should we be doing? Uh, Absence of a clinical syndrome, and then we'll get into the clinical syndromes. Yeah, so um, the guidelines are really sort of risk-based for who to test and when. So it's almost kind of what risk factors does the patient in front of you that help determine the frequency. We, you know, I work in an STI clinic and, and we're, you know, people come in all the time requesting testing. So we do kind of routine screening for HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, trick in some cases. Um, so, you know, when, when patients ask, certainly do it then. And then otherwise, it's if your primary care physician is more of a risk-based um, recommendation. So, Right. So anyone who asks should be tested because they're asking probably for a reason. Anyone who has another STI, be it gonorrhea, chlamydia, mm-hmm. they should also get tested. And, and let me just um, kind of insert, if you don't mind, Anybody who tests positive for syphilis should also be tested for HIV, right? Um, And then for people with HIV, we're generally testing yearly, if not more frequently, you know, depending on risk factors. Right. So you order a test. What happens when the blood goes to the lab? What what are the tests that are done? Is it uh, reflex testing? There's all kinds of terminology. Yeah. So um, I will say things have changed over the last several years. Many labs across the country are more commonly doing what's referred to as the reverse sequence algorithm, where they start with a treponemal test, usually EIA, CIA, kind of these ELISAs, and, and they'll start with the this uh, treponemal test. And then if, if that's positive, it will reflex to a non-treponemal serologic test. So that's generally the RPR or the VDRL. Um, if that's, this gets a little bit complex here, but if, if that's non-reactive, the lab will generally um, 
do an alternative treponemal test that targets different antigens from the first treponemal test. Right. So for the general audience, all that alphabet stuff <laughs> was basically looking, treponemal is the, is the type of organism that syphilis uh, is caused by. So that's a specific test for what we call an antigen or a protein from that bacterium uh, or that organism. And if that's positive, then we go to the serologic test, and that gives us really good information about the relative uh, age of the uh, process. If it's, for example, if it's primary syphilis, that non-treponemal test should be on average a titer of Oh, I don't know if we have an average, and, and just keep in mind that the uh, occasionally it can actually be non-reactive if the patient hasn't converted yet, right? But but generally for primary and secondary syphilis, we do see much higher titers. Well, especially for secondary, right? right especially for Primary, secondary. you may not have a titer just yet, but right. the chancre will be teeming with organisms. Yes, so yes. in the old days, or maybe now, you do a dark field exam and you can actually see right. the organisms. I don't right. think I've run one of those in decades. But. Yeah. And let me just add that the, the non-treponemal tests, so like the RPR and the VDRL, um, those are tests of cellular breakdown products. Um, and so not, uh, not as specific right. for, like you said, the treponemal tests are specific for syphilis. And once um, that's positive, somebody had syphilis at some time in their life, that's going to remain those treponemal tests remain positive for life for the in, most part? In general, we think that up to a quarter of cases, you can actually see that revert to non-reactive if patients are treated early. Okay. Now, you get the test result back. They have, let's say, a titer of 1 to 128. Now you're going to treat them, let's say, let's say secondary syphilis, because that's something we see kind of often. They came in with a rash. They're, they're otherwise normal. Uh, they don't have any neurologic symptoms. They don't have any... Uh, nerve involvement elsewhere, like cranial nerves or that type of thing, what are you going to treat them with? Yeah, so typically for secondary syphilis, we would use benzathine penicillin G, BPG, or the, the trade name is bicillin, bicillin LA, not CR. I like to make that distinction. 2.4 million units. So that's two injections, one single dose given at the same time. Well, subsequent the buttocks. But that would be the treatment of choice. In the setting of the BPG shortage, which we have been seeing since the summer um, for secondary syphilis and primary and early latent, uh, we have been substituting 14 days of doxycycline. It's not you know, the preferred treatment, but we've had to make do in the setting of the penicillin shortage where we are preserving those doses for pregnant and persons, that would, be, that would be 100 milligrams twice a day. Of 100 milligrams twice for and, 14 days. And, and let me just um, put a reminder out there. I think uh, advising patients on the side effects of doxycycline is quite important, right? So full glass of water. Um, don't stay upright for 30 minutes. So don't lie down for 30 to 45 minutes after you take the dose. And just being careful about photosensitivity and those Pulling sorts of things. Sun. So translated that. The reason you want to sit upright and drink enough water is that doxycycline has a tendency to kind of get stuck in the esophagus, and if it does, it causes an ulcer there. Right. And the photosensitivity means if somebody's taking it, they can get sunburned more readily. Yes, yes. Okay. Thank you for breaking that down. Well, all right. So now um, let's go back. It, it I still almost cringe when I think about 
buy psyllin shortage because it's probably one of the least expensive medications to make. It's been around for decades. Um, how in the world do we have plenty of very expensive medicines that you see advertised on TV and get and charge enormous amounts of money, but yet something as simple as bisillin uh, is not readily available or has shortages? doesn't make sense. Yeah, I I agree with you there. It's it's a real shame, I'll just say. It's it's um oh, you know, from a public health standpoint, it's a disaster that we've had these shortages that have led to delays in treatment, um a lot of extra work for clinics trying to, you know, figure this out. Um and so Pfizer is really the only manufacturer and the CDC has been kind of you know, working on this, I've heard on a daily basis to try to increase the supply. Um, but really, the projection is that we aren't going to have truly adequate supply until the second quarter of 2024. And is that because it's how come there's no generic version? I, this is I, I think this is something that the CDC is working to address, but I don't have good answers for you. It's it's just an unfortunate situation where, you know, we should, this is a public health crisis and we should be able to address it better. And, this and is true in other our countries as hands well. Are tied. So in other countries like in, in um, the UK and Japan, they often are using benzathine penicillin G. They go to alternative treatments because of shortages. It's same, worldwide, same worldwide shortages, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned doxycycline. I think most of the experts I've talked to agree or say the same thing. But there are, are other uh, options as well, right? So there could be other penicillins like amoxicillin or uh, maybe treat it with probenicid. What, yeah. what data do you yeah. have on those alternatives besides doxy? Yeah, so other penicillins, I, I'd just like to make the point real quick that we've in the historically used procaine penicillin, but that's no longer manufactured. So we're not using procaine penicillin anymore. Um, amoxicillin can be given in combination with probenicid. This is actually an alternative um, treatment under the guidelines in the United Kingdom. Um, what's been most studied is three grams of amoxicillin with four times daily probenicid. So not an easy regimen for folks to take. Um, there uh, have been several studies published in CID, one in 2015 that just was kind of a retrospective cohort that showed really high rates of serologic response, like upwards of 95%. Um, there was a recent randomized study looking at amoxicillin versus probenicid where they compared that regimen with a lower dose of amoxicillin, just monotherapy, um, the low-dose amoxicillin was not shown to be non-inferior to the combination regimen. Um, but that said, the both rates had really high efficacy rates. Uh, so, so not shown to be non-inferior means it was shown to be inferior? <laughs> so it, these, these studies use these sophisticated kind of designs, right, where it's, it's very, you know, is it non-inferior or not? And if you don't meet non-inferiority criteria... You can't say it's not inferior. In my mind, that you should be able to say it's inferior, right? Right. Okay. So you <laughs> should look for the combination for now. I think that would be the safer bet, kind of recognizing that we, we lack really large clinical trials. And I haven't seen anything that directly compares amoxicillin with probenicid to benzathine penicillin G. Yeah. And 
it's amazing that we don't have those studies. It's not like we have a shortage of cases. Yeah. It's not like we don't have enough clinicians who can do research. Uh, so go for it. Yeah, I, I think one thing that's tricky is you you can design these studies where you look for serologic response, right? But even then, for early syphilis, you're giving folks up to a year to show adequate serologic response. So that creates already a pretty long randomized clinical trial, randomized controlled trial. Um, and I think the other challenge is that we we don't have long-term, it's really hard to show long-term outcomes with syphilis, right? You're looking at complications a decade later. Um, the, these trials, you know, uh, I think um, one of the other challenges is like reinfection rates too. It's hard to tease out reinfection versus real um, cure. And so a lot of times with syphilis, unfortunately, we're just basing what we do on decades of clinical experience and um, an expert opinion, and we don't have fantastic data. And and we may not because of the challenges of folks not wanting to study this and, and the complications I just mentioned with, with the studies. Right. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, we didn't get to late, latent syphilis. So that adds a little bit of extra stress to the system because that's not just 2.4 million units one time. That's 2.4 million units given a week apart times three. Yes. Is there any, are there any data that's emerging that says we might get by with just 2.4 million units once? I haven't seen any data. In fact, we kind of are like the studies have been in the opposite direction where it's should we give three doses for early syphilis, right? Which we just had at ID Week in October, the results of a, a reasonably large study, around 250 participants, where um, it was shown that we do not need three doses for early syphilis. So it was the one dose, one dose was, was non-inferior. <laughs> One dose was non-inferior, was absolutely sufficient Power. to treat early syphilis, Whoa. right? And for late latent syphilis, um, you know, we don't have good data once again. I think the the idea is that in later stages of disease, so late, late latent syphilis by definition has been around for a year or more. And so we think when in these older stages or these um Longer stages of disease, when the when syphilis has been around longer, the treponemes divide more slowly, and so that's when we need to treat for a longer duration. Sounds this like is hypothetical, like, right? Yeah, it sounds yeah. like tuberculosis, where you need to treat a little longer, yeah, but not for yeah. late. Well, the time has moved extremely quickly because <laughs> this is a complex topic that you've made pretty straightforward, and I'm very grateful for you doing this with us. Final comment, uh, where do you see this all going in the next couple of years? What do you anticipate we're going to discover and what we might be doing three to five years from now? Well, if it's been anything like the last three to five to 50 to 500 years, we're not going to make too much progress. But I will say, I think we're all pretty excited to see how doxypep influences our syphilis rates going forward. It would be nice to have a study that shows that it is effective in, in cisgender women, right? So I, I, I'm hopeful for that data to come because as we've discussed, they're the ones who really need this the most to prevent kind of the worst outcomes. But yeah, I mean, I, I really hope that the tide can turn and we start to see lo lower caseloads and, and fewer infections. I hope so as well. 
Dr. Clement, thank you very much for being with us. We've learned that uh, syphilis is a little bit complicated and quite common, becoming a little bit more common, uh, perhaps due to lack of concern or fear like we used to see in the 90s that made the rates go down. Uh, we're coming into a time period where the understanding of what to do is kind of straightforward, but the availability of medications is not as straightforward for reasons that we can't explain why there's a shortage of bicillin. Hopefully, that'll change. And hopefully, as we get into more um, modern types of approaches to prevent sexually transmitted inf infections like the so-called doxypep, which basically means you use doxycycline uh, as a single dose following a known exposure, uh, unprotected sex within 24 to 72 hours, we do see a reduction in all of the STIs. And we kind of hope very intensively that uh, we don't see resistance to doxycycline, which hasn't popped up yet. But boy, I'd hate to lose that drug. That's, uh, uh, I totally agree. That's totally the most agree. valuable player as far as antibiotics go when you really think about it. Yep. So thank yep. you for being with us. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you next time on Going Antiviral. Thanks so much for having me. Enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Going Antiviral. Catch up on earlier episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the video versions of this episode and others on the IAS USA YouTube channel. You can find these links in the show notes or simply go to YouTube and search for IAS USA and there they are. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Going Antiviral on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to serve as medical advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the ISUSA or its affiliates. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, you can send it to podcast at IASUSA.org to be answered in a future episode.